You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. Let's look into God's Word at Romans once again. And now Romans chapter 12 is where we're going to be at. Chapter 12. We have ventured out of 9 through 11 and come into 12 today. On your way there, I've got a two-for-one special on Pictures of the Week. The brothers, and they're both wearing red today. So Malachi and Michael, we'll start with Micah first. These guys are faithful most weeks to turn in a picture. And so it's like, I want to show them both here. And I really appreciate that. Micah's picking us up from last week. If you weren't here uh, with us, we're looking, well, last week we were looking at verse 36, but in the package of this 33 through 36 at the end, God says, you know, what am I thinking? I think man says here, I don't know. And that's right. We don't know the mind. That's God's point. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? How can we hope to advise God on what he ought to do? He knows. Micah caught on to that. Then from Malachi, the next one summed up where we were last week in verse 36. Oh, I do have my little pointer. Now, I was just looking at this. Hey, there we go. Uh, so you know, because we can look quick. You got the hymn here. There's actually three hymns here. That's kind of cool. From him, through him, and to him. So it's kind of what we said last week, that everything, Malachi's pointing out here, everything is to him. All things to him be glory forever. Amen, or truly, or as a congregation we say truly, this is so. So thank you, Micah. Thank you, Malachi, for those pictures. Appreciate that. But now you're in chapter... 12 of Romans, and we're going to venture in just to verses 1 and 2 here. Familiar, maybe to many of you, familiar passage and so good and so packed to think on this morning. So let's listen to God's word here, beginning verse 1, Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray once again. Fathers, I think towards just reading this passage once again, many of us are familiar. We have heard these words before. We hear words like, don't conform to this world and be transformed, be a living sacrifice, and not sure how many times all of us have read this even, Lord. But Father, you give us your word for training and correcting, rebuking us, teaching us, and so may your word do that work today, even amongst uh, and in familiar areas. Lord, your word is worthy of our attention and worthy of our thoughts and our minds towards it. So I pray along, Lord, as already has been prayed, that your spirit would work amongst us in our minds, that we would understand the things of God through your spirit within. And so help us to do that. Help us to meditate on these few verses here and so grow and so be this living sacrifice that you call us to. So guide our time, Lord, for your glorious name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today's passage does mark a shift from where we've been to really some, some practical, I've been mentioning that and pulling that out of some of the commentaries, notice that after 11, there's just this more practical nature of Paul here. But it's not like we're on to chapter 12 and we've just forgotten everything up to this point. We're not on a totally, we're maybe subject-wise, maybe the, the aim turns, but it's not without looking back to what's come before this point. So that Romans chapter 1 through 11 form the basis. This is foundation, the foundation has been laid for what Paul's going to say here and of what follows. Doug Mood comments, there, you're going to see a therefore in your first verse of chapter 12 there, a therefore, and he says this, he says, Paul wants to show, with the use of this word, Paul wants to show that the exhortations of chapter 12 here through chapter 15, verse 13, he says, are built firmly on the theology of chapters 1 through 11. So we're building what we do and the therefore built on theology. Theology and doctrine, it is not a bad thing. It's what we build our belief, our thoughts on from God's Word, what we believe, and it's going to inform and change what we do. And so these chapters here that we're getting into come in light of all of what we've read up to this point. So let's head to verse 1, back into our text, and just read. I'll just read a little ways into it here. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And we'll stop there for right now. It could be translated, this first part could be translated, I strongly urge you, might be a way to say this. Elsewhere, you've got other places in the New Testament where this phrase, maybe in the ESV you've got appeal, but elsewhere it says, I, uh, I beg you, or as I mentioned, I urge you, I appeal, I entreat you, I exhort Paul's making an appeal to the church in Rome and the entire church at Rome because he uses the word brothers here. You see the word brothers. I haven't pointed this out much. Uh, little ESV note points out, or brothers and sisters. So by Paul saying, I appeal to you, therefore, could be saying brothers and sisters. And I don't think the ESV note here is just some kind of way for modern translations to acclimate, you know, to... Well, we better make sure that, you know, both men and women, they're represented, everything's equal, you know, just make, kind of tie that in. I think there's Greek precedence in the Greek language and how it was used at the time to say that when Paul uses the word brothers, there's a sense of brothers and sisters implied there. And what's implied is Paul uh, appealing and addressing to, really, this entire church here. Appeal to you, brothers. But it's this next phrase that makes this statement, I think, unique and so important and what ties us back to everything that came before. And it's that phrase, by the mercies of God. Paul's appeal here, his urging, it stems from these mercies of God. We've seen mercy, even the last few verses, uh, Romans eleven thirty one and 32, talks about mercy. Interestingly, that's a little different word for mercy than the word we have here, but if you head to Romans 9, verse 15, so we're going to work a little bit around Romans because there's some themes that keep popping up, but if you turn back to verse 15 of chapter 9, in one verse, Paul actually uses both words for mercy. So you can head there, Romans 9, 15. 
Paul's going to quote here. He's, he's going to quote because the scripture, or God says to Moses here. So he's going to quote from Exodus 33, where Moses is asking the Lord to show him his glory. And at that point in Exodus 33, God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. you know, Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I'm going to make my goodness uh, pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And right after that statement, we've got what Paul writes down here in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have, and here's our word, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And just verse 16, so he says, so then, just as a reminder, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And mercy is how God defines who he is, and it's how he shows himself to Moses. Uh, Exodus 33, where this is from, you get to Exodus 34, where God is showing himself to Moses, and this is what God says. He says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. If you head back to chapter 21, it's this mercy of God that Paul is appealing to. Could we not say that this mercy, God's mercy, Paul's appeal to this, it's, it's been his point throughout Romans. Paul's made it clear as we look, chapter 3, both Jew and Greek, they're all, they're all under sin, and they're deserving of God's judgment and His wrath. All are under that. So, Keeping in mind, God doesn't owe anyone mercy. This is, not, this is of His grace to show mercy. What He owes all of us, children of wrath that we are, without Christ is death, judgment, that wrath. But listen to this. You can write down these references. Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. Think about this mercy that Paul's even been showing. Paul says there, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us. Could we say that's not His mercy? He shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, they're at, the, they're at the heart of the gospel. And it's a gospel that Paul is not ashamed to proclaim. It's what he's been proclaiming, and it's what's going to drive his counsel from here. And it's this mercy, it's this love, it's the basis, it's the ground upon the doing. So any living for Christ that we're going to talk about, living sacrifice, it implies that we ourselves are no longer dead to sin, but we're alive. We're alive in Christ. By how? Not by us, by God's mercy. So out of this new life then flows this, this living. And I've mentioned it before. It'll be familiar. The words, the, the indicative must pre- precede the imperative. The indicative is who we are. What, what is really the case? Who are we? Are we in Christ? Are you a new creation? Are you in Him? And that's going to affect, that's going to affect 
what we do, the imperative. So all these commands, do this, be a living sacrifice, love one another, all these things don't flow us to get acceptable to God and gain our salvation. They flow out of what our salvation is, what we have in Christ. And so anything of what we do, it's by God's mercy. It's His sovereign mercy, whom He wills, and it's alone in Christ. So living sacrifices that we're going to look at, they are born out of God's mercy. And so with that in mind, then let's look at this imperative, the command of Paul, the second part of verse 1. So the first part, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, remember that foundation, everything that's come before, to then do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you think of the Old Testament sacrifices, might bring to mind the priest, the bulls, or the goats, or the lambs, the sacrifices that were made. You might think, I think of, um, it's helpful to think of offering the burnt offering, the peace offering, these sorts of offerings. Offerings made in worship, offerings made for sin upon an altar. And what was that to be? It was to be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So we think of that altar and sacrifice. Maybe it's this fiery image, think of, of this offering that is upon the altar when we think of this living sacrifice. But as you think of where Paul is writing this letter to, to the Romans, it's interesting that I think it's not just the Jewish people that would grab hold of this language of sacrifice. I think it was more a universal idea. One resource says this, one Uh, It was a dictionary, I think, on sacrifice. said, the first century church lived in a culture that sacrificed to their gods. Which, by the way, which culture do we still live in that is sacrificing to gods? It might not be, we don't see burnt burnings on the corners of streets, but nonetheless. But they say the first century church lived in a culture that sacrificed to their gods. Paul and Barnabas at Lystra were thought to be the gods Zeus and Hermes. The priest of Zeus sought to offer sacrifices to them. Or they say the church at Corinth was embroiled in a controversy over whether or not it was permissible for Christians to eat meat offered to idols, implying sacrifice. And so I think Rome, the city of Rome where Paul's writing this letter, it's no different. They would understand this. I think it's, again, safe to say the language of sacrifice is universal. Write it to Jew or Gentile. They're going to understand, oh yeah, this is what, we've seen this. We know what sacrifices are. And so Paul takes the imagery of sacrifice and then applies it to the Christian life. And just to be clear, this is not a sacrifice for the atonement of sins. That's Christ. That's His work, His finished work. Nor is it a dead sacrifice. It's a living one. And it's been said here, a parallel here is Romans 6.19. You've got in the chapter of Romans 6, you've got a chapter pointing out our, our death to sin and then this call to walk in the newness of life, this life we have because we have been raised with Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 6, verse 19, listen to the familiar, you can just listen to it, for just as you once, as you once so there's this past, you're indicative here, now, okay, so just as you were 
once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, what? By the mercies of God in Christ. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. It's this giving. It's the offering. It's presenting ourselves to God sacrificially. And I think you see the words here where Paul gets at this idea of sanctification with words in the text, living sacrifice, words like holy or acceptable, or might say please. So the question for you, what kind of kind of living sacrifice will you be? Maybe just doing enough to get by? Or maybe obedience, it's just, it's not really joyful to obey, it's just a, it's just a duty. Listen to God's rebuke. There's an interesting uh, rebuke of the priests in Malachi chapter 1. They were bringing less than holy sacrifice. So you think of this sacrifice as holy and acceptable. God's going to come down on these priests. Listen to how he does it and apply it even in our own lives. God says to them, For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God does not want sacrifices from us that are just enough to get by for the day. I've read enough. I've just given just enough. I think I've met that quota. Now on to other things. Following Christ demands we put everything on the altar. Everything. We offer our lives for God and for the sake of His glory. In that thought, though, I found this insightful comment along the way here. And it said this. It says, The problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. Isn't that good? The, the problem with the living sacrifice is you're on that altar and then you just keep crawl, they keep crawling off the altar. Maybe that rings true in your life. Like, Lord, I give it all to you, except that. Or I'm going to follow you, Lord, wherever, whatever you tell me, whatever you say, I'm going to follow you, but just not there or not in this situation. Now here again, even in that, we must be anchored to the mercy of God to the gospel, that we, by faith in Christ, we are righteous, and yet hear the high call of this sacrificial living. And so Paul says, this is, it says, which is your, this is our spiritual worship. And the word for spiritual here, you'll kind of recognize, it comes from a Greek, uh, logikos or logikos, or you hear in there logic, spiritual, can be translated sometimes, uh, ESV offers rational or the kingdom says this is your, I think it says your reasonable service. A couple thoughts. What's spiritual service? Why, why this logic? Why reasonable? 
One thought, I, I wonder if Paul is not wanting to make clear here that the idea of sacrifice he's got, it, it's a metaphor. It's not something literally to do. Don't literally, you know, we think of cutting your hand off for sin, deal with it, live it out, but don't, maybe to the Romans even, don't take this seriously as in actually killing yourself on some altar. It's a spiritual sacrifice in its nature. And so, number two, I think it focuses on the mind, this logic, what we think, how we reason. It's in the mind. John Murray says this. He writes, We are not spiritual in the biblical sense except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. In essence, worship is not to be void of the mind, of the intellect. And it's the very mind God has given us to be engaged. And we're to be thoughtful in terms of how we live and what we do. Not purely emotions will come. There is joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul will say. But it's not void of the mind. Not just, let me just feel the Lord. I just want to feel. Well, that will come, and it comes as we and we see truth in God's Word, and we believe, and then there's joy in that. So the mind is at work here. And as we get into verse 2 now, Paul's aim, you see it, his aim is at the mind. Look at the first part of uh, verse 2. So Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Do not be conformed. To not be conformed, it's to not be molded, to not be patterned after this world. So in a sense, this world wants to shape you into its mold, how it operates, this world shapes. Here's, here's what you ought to enjoy. Here's what you should take pleasure in. Here's what you ought to seek after. Paul's admonition here, don't conform. Truly be a nonconformist in this sense. And if you want to head to Romans 1... I think we're going to see the contrast of the world. If you look at Romans 1, where we've been, again, using what's here to just kind of work this out. Romans 1, I think, describes this mold or this pattern against which Paul is urging the church in Rome. I just want to read you verses 21 through 25. You get a taste of this, this pattern of this world where... few pages turning. I'll take a drink. Chapter 1, verse 21. Think of the world here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their, hmm, interesting, thinking. Not the same word as mind here, but I mean, again, you got that idea. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, think of the mind, they became what? Fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what followed? And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator 
who is blessed forever. Amen. Three times here, when we looked at this, three times we see God gave them up. And the last one comes down in verse uh, 28, where, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. To a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Hold on to that thought of the mind, and then let's head back to chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Because I want to look again at Paul's use of the word world here. Most, I think any of your English translations are going to have wor- world in it. I don't think that's, there's a reason for that. But the, the Greek word here is, is ion or, or aeon or we think of age. So you could say, it, it says here, do not be conformed to this age. I go, well, why would they all translate it as world if Paul's saying don't be conformed to this age? And I'm thankful here. Leon Morris mentioned him. He notes this. He notes that in terms of the age here, it means it is the present age, this world, this present dark age, evil age, in contrast with the age to come in Christ, his kingdom. And so this present age world of darkness, all of what Romans 1 would describe, it's in contrast to this coming age, the kingdom of the glory of the coming Christ. And so I think it, it makes sense why translations would say world here because it's, it's just synonymous with this present evil age. This is helpful because now, listen to this. You can write these references down. Sorry, there's so, there's so many. It's just wonderful when God's Word just speaks things. Galatians 1, verse 3 through 5, Paul writes here. Think of this. Think of this, this present evil age and now listen to these words. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The aeon, same thing. According to the will of God and of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's the idea we've been delivered from this, this world, this evil age. There's deliverance. It's the idea, this present world, this age, it is not our home in that way. We're to live in it, we're to work here, we're to operate, but ultimately, this world of corruption and sin, it's not our city or our ultimate home. And I think Hebrews 11 is even just helpful to think through. Hebrews 11.10 speaks about Abraham. It says he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Not just a temporal city, but the city designed and built by God. A few verses later, it says this, and listen to this. In light of Paul saying, don't conform to this present evil age, this world, but then we're going to get to be transformed. Later it says that those of faith, they, they acknowledged, those of faith, acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. 
Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Let me read a, maybe a longer comment from Doug Moo here. He says, This world or this age, as we think back on verse 2 here, is the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which all people, included in Adam's fall, naturally belong. But it is to deliver us from the present evil age that Christ gave himself. And those who belong to Christ have been transferred from the old realm of sin and death into the new realm of righteousness and life. This transfer, while decisive and final, does not isolate us from the influence of the old realm. For while belonging to the new realm, we continue to live as people still in the body in the old realm. Paul's command that we not conform to this world then builds on the theology of Romans 5 through 8 and of 6 especially. It calls on us to resist the pressure to be squeezed into the mold of this world and the pattern of behavior that typifies it. So rather than be conformed, we are to be transformed. In the Greek, you're going to hear that word metamorphosis, transformed. To be transformed is to change form, to be formed beyond or on the other side of where you are. It's a different form. So rather than being conformed and molded to the world, we're to be transformed, molded really to the image of Christ. And that transformation is by how? By the renewal of our mind. The word for renewal here can have the idea of renovation, the renovation of our mind. Kind of like a, you think of a house renovation. The old is changed out. The new, that boy, what a renovated, what a new house that looks like. That's this renovation. And it's this where? In the mind. The problem in Romans 1 for those in rebellion is the mind because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. But for those in Christ made alive by the Spirit, renovations of our minds have already begun. We're already being made new. Walk in the newness of life by the Spirit. Romans 8.5 says, Those who live according, according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so again, Doug Moo, I mentioned a couple times here, comments on verse 2 in the mind. He says, Christians are to adjust their way of thinking about everything in accordance with the newness of their life in the Spirit. I've got one more picture to show up here. If you look on the front of your bulletin, you're going to see this image this morning. Kind of a... George helped me a lot with this, so I really appreciate our graphic design department living in Round Rock, Texas. But um, there's, I think there's some helpfulness to get an image of w- this idea of living and transforming while living in this world. You've got there kind of this picture of this man, kind of like a pilgrim. Maybe the fire there. Other pictures got kind of a campfire there. Think of that living sacrifice think of him like a pilgrim but there is the city or there is the world before him and there's this idea of sacrificial living in this world where we are to live God's put us here 
And we're to live. We need to work here. We need to glorify God where he has put us in this city, this, even this present evil age, but we're not to be conformed to it. And we've got that temptation from the old nature within us and that pull. But here we're not in a game just between the world being conformed to the world and transformed. Oh, it's just a, just a friendly little game, a tug and war. A little bit of that. A little, I guess it's okay. It's not tug of war. It's war. It's battle. And it's a war within, within our own minds. We looked at it in Romans 7, and a war without. And I think this image, as we use it through these chapters, gives you that idea of living is like this as a sacrifice. It's not just a little bit of enough to get by. It's everything on the altar. So we come then to this last phrase of verse 2. So we're to be transformed by the renewal of the of your mind, and then Paul says, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this phrase, just admittedly, it's a little difficult to understand at the first reading, or maybe second or third or fourth reading. It, what it's not, it's not testing here to see if we want to do God's will. You know, by testing, you may discern. I, let me test and see if I want to do. God's Spirit is at work to, to make us to want to do what God's will is. It, nor is it testing to determine God's authority. I'm going to test God's will out here. What he said, maybe he's authoritative, maybe not. It's not that. It's testing to discern. Other versions say uh, to prove or test and approve this will of God. And again, I'm going to get help from Mr. Moo. Again, because he helps, here's what to take on what this means. It says it means to understand, what is this testing that you may discern? To understand and agree with what God wants of us with a view to putting it into practice. Discern and do the will of God. Another commentator, Leon Morris, says Paul here is arguing for the spiritual discernment that ascertains what God wants us to do and then sets itself to do it. What do you want, Lord? Understand what is God wanting of me? What's his will? And then the desire to go do that will. And how does God want us then to live in this present age? By renovating our mind. How? By God's Spirit through what? The Word that His Spirit has given us to understand and then do God's Good, says, an acceptable or pleasing and perfect will. We don't need to look to horoscopes or a breeze of the wind here, Lord. What would you have me do? Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. I think there's an idea, maybe even an idea of that here. It's about our aim. Our aim be God's aim. And what's his aim? Malachi showed us in his picture today, from him, through him, to him are all things. His aim is God's glory. God has given us his spirit at work within. He's given us his word for our instruction. Listen to this encouraging word from Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. And I'm going to read them at the end of our time, just so you know. I'm going to read them twice today in light of this. 
says there, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Working in us, this is God equipping us to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing, or I think the same word of acceptable here, that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There is no middle ground for the follower of Christ. There's no room for, if you're a follower of Christ, there's not room for tomorrow I'm going to start following. I'll get to it at some point. Jesus says, follow me. He says, lay down your life. Lose your life for my sake. In the words here of Romans, be a living sacrifice. Offering all of yourself to Him. The burnt offering was not meant to be put kind of half on the altar and then kind of half off. It's all the way on. And as we work through, I think, these next four chapters here, we're going to see this theme of sacrificial living. And it's going to come out in how we deal with our enemies, how we deal with a government, and really then how we deal with one another as the body of Christ? How do we sacrificially live for God to honor Him for His glory in the midst of living with one another as His body, the church? And so Paul says, God says really, in light of what He has done, in light of this mercy, that He's laid down His life on the cross for your salvation, that you might have new life, don't be molded to this age. Be renovated in the mind. And then do the will of God. God's given us this mind. And so we want to use it. Use what He's given you for His glory. He's even equipped us with what we need so that we might present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, I just pray to You as we close that the temptation and the old nature that will raise up within our own hearts till we one day be totally transformed uh, into your image, says let's just step off the altar for a moment. Let's just not follow for a bit, and then I'll get back on. Lord, may we be a people that live this sacrificial life, not half on or half off, but all the way on the altar, And Lord, in that prayer, I praise you that you've given verses like Hebrews 13 and so many elsewhere say you've equipped us for what you've called us to do. You haven't called us to something you've not equipped us for by your spirit to walk in it. So guide us, Lord, to walk in newness of life that you've already given us by the spirit. And may you renew our minds. May the word before us, all this word from Genesis to Revelation, be a word that in our minds is transforming us and conforming us, not to the image of this world, but to your glorious image to bring you glory. And I pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus who works within us by his Spirit. Amen.
You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.